Good morning, and welcome to episode 552 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. So we had a day without baseball. We have another day without baseball coming up. So we are, as we've promised for a while, going to get to some listener emails on a day when we don't have new baseball to talk about. And we will preview the championship series tomorrow with a guest. Should be good. But for today, we will catch up on some of the listener email backlog. We will do mostly playoff-themed and playoff-team-themed emails. Some of you have been sending non-playoff-themed emails that will probably help us once the playoffs were will, are over and we will revisit them. But for now, playoffs. Playoffs all the time. Um also, you can ask the Kershaw one, by the way, because you wanted to know whether you should ask the Kershaw one. Go ahead. Ask the Kershaw uh-huh. one. But also, I just okay. wanted to say it's a fun play index. Oh, good. I'm or looking forward it, to I it. don't know. Maybe it won't be a fun play index, but it is a, it is a heck of a play <laughs> index. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let me start with this observation then before we get into the playoffs from Scott, who uh, noticed something that... Once you once Scott brought it to our attention, it's, it's interesting. It's hard to stop thinking about it. So he says, why do most pitchers lean in to get the sign from the catcher when they're in the stretch? Surely they're capable of seeing the signs from a standing position. In fact, most pitchers take signs standing up when out of the windup, only to hunch over awkwardly once a runner reaches base. If it is to help them pick to first, wouldn't they have the ball in their throwing hand? If they're actually stretching to relieve back tension or something, why not do it when in the windup? Other than the odd intimidation derived by Craig Kimbrell putting his arm around the shoulder of his diminutive imaginative, imaginary friend, I simply do not see any practical reason for leaning in. So what am I missing? Yeah, we're not going to answer this. We don't know. But we it's super duper weird when you think about it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that it is... I I don't know how this is, but I assume the answer has to do with holding the runner. Mm-hmm. That it's and like I don't like he says it doesn't. It's not clear how that helps, but it has something to do with the process of getting into the set in a way that I guess keeps the runner close, maybe, or it's simply an energy saver. Like it's <laughs> it's simply easier to like kind of half lay down. Like, you know, have you ever climbed on a rock wall uh-huh. and there's like this particular way that you can sort of squat or something that is much less stressful on your haunches. And so when you're just sort of chilling there waiting for somebody to, to catch up to you or uh, save you because you're terrified, uh, there's this particular kind of way that takes that makes it much easier. You could sit up there for hours if you needed to. And I if it's just sort of like and I'm tired kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> could be just the stress of pitching with a runner on base it's tension you've got your muscles stiffen up i don't know um we should we should tweet at some pitchers who are active on twitter and ask them but I, yeah I, I asked uh i just sent an email to, to gabe to see but i sent it like two seconds ago 
Uh-huh. So that's not, that's yeah. not soon enough. And I don't he's know. He's not even a pitcher. What does he know I, about he pitching? He isn't. But I bet he knows. He probably I bet, does. Hey, I don't know if he knows, but he has a much better idea than we do. <laughs> that's true about a lot of things. Someone listening probably knows, so let us know. Post it in the Facebook group or email us at podcast.baseballperspectives.com. Okay, so you did give me permission to ask this question about home runs and Clayton Kershaw's curveball, which was asked by Michael. He says, I remember reading something a few years ago about how nobody had ever managed to hit a regular season homer on Clayton Kershaw's curveball. I holstered this to be drawn later as a Clayton Kershaw fun fact and have drawn it a few times. You can see Jeff Sullivan make reference to this fact in his article from May 2013. I'm a Cards fan, and I've seen the Cards face Kershaw a pretty fair amount in the playoffs recently. And the thing I keep noticing is that the Cards just won't stop homering when he throws a curveball. And he sends us some links to examples. Matt Holliday in the 2009 NLCS, Randall Grichuk in Game 1 of this year's NLDS, Matt Adams, of course. So I'm not sure of the validity of this whole thing. Nor am I sure how to look into it. Maybe you can make something of it, but this seems to have the makings of a fun fact that's getting even funner. All right, so I am... It's surprising that he said that at the end. That's where it took a twist, because to (laughs) me, uh, this is a fact that was fun uh, and is getting less fun, because now he gives up home runs on his curveball. It's still a really good pitch, uh, but fun facts really have to... To, to sort of shock you. They have to be a jolt. More than anything, they have to have some sort of, um, uh, like, they have to have no rough edges. There has to be a round number. There has to be, you know, something clean about it. Like, for instance, the Angels recently had 38 players on their active roster, and the Braves had used 39 players all year. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, and it was so interesting that I, I tweeted it, even though it isn't really good enough. It, if it had been 39 and 39, or if the Angels had, had 40, that would have made it a really good one. But getting close to a fun fact is not that fun. And if I had just waited like a day and a half, they called up their 39th guy on their active <laughs> roster like a couple days later. I could have had 39 mm. and 39. I blew it. You're such but, a fun fact purist. But the Kershaw fun fact was only interesting, it, well, not only interesting, but it was only fun what, to me when he had zero, when we thought he had zero. And as I've noted, fun facts almost always have a lie in them. Uh, and this lie was that Kershaw had a home run allowed to Matt Holliday in the 2009 postseason that the fun fact um, uh, tweeters were overlooking or yeah, or they had to couch it and say regular season curveballs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, so there was, which is fine. There's you're allowed a lie in a fun fact. You're allowed one one uh, convenient crop out of in, in any fun fact. Uh, but then then it emerged that he had actually allowed uh, what is almost certainly a home run on a curveball a couple years ago in the regular season. But PitchFX had called it a slider. Now, it looks like a curveball. It's 77 or 78 miles an hour. Uh, it's a curveball. And uh, so then that invalidates the, even the, the, the regular season thing. And so I was already kind of not that cool with it. And then now we have two in this NLDS. Plus, uh, what Michael doesn't note is that Brandon Hicks, I think Brandon Hicks of all people, hit one off of Kershaw earlier this year. Uh, which is what got a lot of people thinking about this fun fact in the first place. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Brandon Hicks. Yeah, it was Brandon Hicks. Who's who's not you know is not even that good. And I think it was uh, like on an O two pitch if I remember correctly. And so there's a lot now. Uh, I would say that um, uh, by the way the the, uh, the the pitch FX slider slash curveball mm-hmm. uh, was also hit by a cardinal. So <laughs> to, to Michael would consider this to just be getting better and better. So I guess <laughs> my question to you is let's let's assume. The Brandon Hicks home run never existed. I think Brandon Hicks invalidates this, and it is no longer worth ever pointing out when a guy homers off Clayton Kershaw's curveball. It's just it's a thing that happens sometimes. Not that often, but sometimes. However, assume for a second that Brandon Hicks had never hit this home run, and Kershaw had given up uh, four home runs on his curveball over the last five years, and they were all to the Cardinals. Would this be more or less interesting as a fun fact to you than if he had allowed a legitimate zero on his curveball? The fact that it's concentrated in one team. Yeah, that it's all Cardinals. Yeah. I think still slightly less interesting than no no curveball homers to anyone. I agree. It is mildly interesting. It, it, maybe you start thinking that the Cardinals have not, not pitch tipping, not Cardinals devil, devil magic, but, but it's possible. And this was something that we didn't really mention the other day when we were talking about whether we bought the idea that the Cardinals own Clayton Kershaw. You would think that, I mean, if advanced scouts do anything, right, if they if they contribute anything, if there are advanced scouts who are better than other teams' advanced scouts and give those teams an advantage, then you would expect some splits, some player versus team splits to be real or right. sort of real, and yet we could never tell which ones they are because the samples never get very big, but... If you wanted to make that case, it's it's at least conceivable that some team spotted something, some team does a better job of informing its hitters that someone throws a particular pitch on a certain count and they're ready for it. So it's possible. It's possible that teams can pick something up against a particular opponent. It's just it's just hard for us ever to say that that's true, and usually it probably won't be true, so the safer assumption is that it's not true. But it, it could be in any individual case. The thing about the home run on one pitch type stat is that, I mean, he, there were like a, there was a span of three years or so where Kershaw didn't really throw the curveball very yeah. much. I'm looking at Brooks baseball and looking at the percentages of, of curveball usage. And so he came up and in 2008, he was throwing a, a decent number of curves. 2009, he was throwing a decent number of curves. And then 2010, he threw 6.75% of his pitches were curves. And then 2011, uh, 5% of his pitches. So, I mean, he didn't throw all that many curveballs. Yeah, not all that many. You're right. And, and, but I, uh, when Hicks hit, hit his earlier in the season, I wrote about this fun fact and about Hicks. And in since the start of 2012, at that point, he had thrown it 900 times. So he, uh-huh. threw, he threw a curveball 900 times without, you know, really hanging one and having somebody crush it. Uh, and and the Alan Craig one had come in 2011. So he did have a thousand curveball run basically mm-hmm. without allowing one, which is not nothing. It's it's pretty it's pretty something. My I think that one of my least favorite Kershaw facts that I see from time to time. And I once edited out of, uh, of an otherwise well-written uh, document about Kershaw. 
was the one about his strikeout to walk ratio on the curveball. Are you familiar with this one at all? No. Uh-uh. I, I see it a bit. Um, and uh, like I saw last year, so th- last year uh, he struck out 78 and walked nobody with his curve, which is amazing, right? Isn't that a great fun fact? Sort of. He didn't throw it <laughs> once on three balls. He never, he literally never threw it on three balls, not one time. It would be impossible to walk a batter if you don't throw the curveball on three balls, which is not to say that 78 isn't a lot of strikeouts, and it's not to say that it's not one of the best pitches in the game. It's just that this is a lie too far. <laughs> he could mm-hmm. not. And as I, I mentioned this in, in the thing I wrote about Kershaw fun facts, if anything, if anything, that fun fact, when um, you know acknowledging the caveat, that fun fact is a knock on his curveball because he can't throw it, according to, to this, he can't throw it with three balls, that he is physically incapable of throwing a three ball curve if he goes an entire season without doing it. Mm. Uh, and so it's not even a, it's a pitch he has to pocket when he's behind in the count. I don't think that's true, but if you were going to draw anything from that fun fact, that's what you would draw. Otherwise, he's awesome. <laughs> right. Okay, this question comes from our guest yesterday, Zachary Levine, who says, if you worked for a non-playoff team and could be detached from the emotions of rivalries, would you be rooting for or against your division rivals in the playoffs? I could see rooting against that team because maybe a title would mean more money, they'd be harder to compete against in the future. But I could also see the argument that most teams have money and money doesn't buy much anymore, so I'd rather they win and maybe get complacent or they keep advancing and their pitchers have to throw more, sometimes on short rest, and maybe that helps us next year or in the long run. Any thoughts? I think he's he's definitely uh, he's definitely undervaluing the, the, the benefit of money. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, every team has seems like every team has money these days, but still 50 million or whatever is not nothing. And uh, I wouldn't want the opposing team to have that money. Um, however, it's probably closer. It, the, I, I believe the, uh, I at least believe the hypothesis is sound that pitchers do worse after they've gone through a long October, or at least some pitchers do. Mm-hmm. But more than that, I would think that the, that the real threat to a team which uh, we saw, I think, as we talked about, we, I think we've seen with the Rangers, even though they never did win the World Series, is a brain drain in your front office. If you have a reputation as the team that's, that's got the solutions, then your assistant GMs start getting hired to be GMs. Your, uh, your scouting and player development directors beget, become getting hired as other teams' assistant GMs. And your scouts and your coaches go with them a lot of times. They get poached by the guys they used to work for, who used to head their departments. And uh, I think that's a real threat to a team's uh, sort of system and continuity, especially if you're talking about losing your draft and develop guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't think that it is necessarily necessarily likely to come back and, and, and cost you, ruin your dynasty or whatever. But it's certainly one way that dynasties fail, I would think, uh, one possibility for how they fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I were the, uh, you know, in retrospect, if I were the, uh, the A's and the Mariners, I would probably be pretty happy that the Rangers uh, had as successful a run and, as, uh, and the perception of as a successful a run as, as they had for those few years. 
And maybe you've written in the past about how teams that win the World Series tend to keep their roster together and oh, yeah. resign that's, everyone, bring everyone back. Yeah, so, the uh, the stand pat philosophy, the stand right. pat theory, yes. the theory of pat in standing it. I don't know whether that applies to regular playoff teams or whether it's only World Series winners, which it's you... It's only World Series winners. That's uh-huh. the thing. That the, the World Series loser, as I recall when I looked at this over the course of a half century or something, as I recall, World Series losers tend to do better than World Series winners the next year. Uh-huh. And, and my hypothesis, based on uh, roster trends, is that World Series winners tend to stand pat, tend to re-sign players, uh, and uh, don't make what would, what another team would consider necessary upgrades in the uh, in the following offseason. Yeah, or they they arrange their roster by sentiment and they want to bring back the guys who got them there and the fan favorites or something, and maybe that could cost them in the long run. But I probably still wouldn't wish a World Series title on my rival hoping that they would make bad decisions because of it. I would think that that the benefit of getting there probably outweighs that. Um, I mean, it, it can be a pretty big boost. Like, I would, I would expect the Royals, for instance, who drew under 2 million this year, and they got some criticism for that, but you can understand why a team that had been losing for close to three decades would not bring its fans back immediately at the first sign of success. But after this postseason run, even if it doesn't go further than it has to this point, I would expect that they will draw better next year than 11th out of 15 in the American League. And that will be some sort of boost for them. Maybe they'll sell some season tickets. Maybe they'll sell some merchandise and maybe they'll be able to afford someone that they wouldn't have been otherwise. So I I think the money is probably still the—it's still worth something. I agree. Okay. I'm with uh, you. All right. This one comes from one of the many Matts who listen to this podcast, and it has to do with a tweet of mine and a response to that tweet. So he asks about our response to what MGL, or Mitchell Lichman, the sabermetrician who we've mentioned on the show many times— And alluded to once— <laughs> yes, uh, recently. Yes. Yes, about one of his other tweets to me. What he said in response to my tweet, and my tweet was something about how it was after, right after the Matt Adams home run, and how I, I did not envy MLB managers because of the decisions that they have to make about bullpens and fatigue starters. And Mitchell responded to me and said, I actually don't think they are difficult decisions at all. That's the beauty of managing him optimally. And so Matt wants to know, I I understand you might be bored of talking about manager decisions, but MGL seemed to bring it up in a slightly different way. And I'd be interested in hearing what kind of response you might have to that on the podcast. So uh, Mitchell's position is that it's easy to manage. At least the the in-game stuff is easy. Maybe talking to the media is not easy. Maybe... Maybe managing players in the clubhouse is not easy, but making pitching changes and deciding whether to bunt or any kind of in-game tactic that you can name should be easy because statistically there is a right answer. Usually, usually there is an answer. It might be very close. Maybe a couple options come out just about the same, 
but Mitchell has his projection system and he tries to factor everything that he can into that and platoon splits and home road and and pitch types and velocity and it spits out an answer and that is the optimal decision according to the, the stats in the projection system so is managing easy is it is it tactically easy if there is a correct answer statistically speaking to every in-game move does that mean it's easy and i would i would still stick with my position which is no it's not easy i think maybe there are certain decisions that don't get made that seem like they should be easy sometimes and uh maybe managers make them harder than they should be but i think it's also possible that the other factors that the stats don't consider things like a certain guy feels like he doesn't have his best stuff today or he feels like he has even better stuff than usual today or he is suffering from some kind of nagging injury or something that is not in the stats and that a manager might know. Those things might make this decision harder because you then have to weigh these sort of subjective factors as, as well as whatever the stats would say. Or they might make it harder in that you might put too much stock in those things. You might look into a guy's eyes and he says, I can get this guy. And maybe he doesn't know whether he can get this guy. Maybe he is exactly what the stats say he is, no matter how determined he is when you go out to the mound and talk to him and try to take the ball away and he won't give it to you. So I think it's it's probably more difficult. It's certainly difficult in the sense that millions of people are watching what you do and criticizing what you do and first guessing and second guessing you. But, of course, you could say that managers shouldn't pay attention to that, that they should be confident in their answers and that that shouldn't even be a factor. Even so, I think there are enough sort of soft factors that go into these things, managing players' egos over the course of the season, that it is still a difficult job. I think that probably some of the ones that are controversial, a lot of the ones that are controversial, probably are easy. Uh, but they're not all easy. And even if you consider them easy, even if you just focus on the ones that are easy, maintaining a club, maintaining a team uh, over the course of a season uh, is itself challenging and uh, sometimes requires that you make moves other than the easy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think I disagree. I think it's incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I guess some of them are, some, some are easier than probably we give credit to yes some are and and the ones that we talked about last night the the matt williams decision we were wondering whether something would come out whether tyler clippard it would turn out would actually be hiding an injury or suffering some from from some injury we didn't know about as it turned out that was not the case that it was the seventh inning and matt williams was going to stick with the seventh inning guys and that's exactly what he said uh okay so do you want to do your your play index segment that you've built up our expectations for? Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, I don't have a great narrative storyline or anything. I just have a pretty awesome thing. So the A's, as you know, did what? I don't, you maybe you don't know. Do you know? <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> the, the A's did not use a lot of rookies this year. We've talked yes, about that. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. We've talked about how the A's have uh, have one, their latest zig seems to be trading prospects for uh, players who might be considered 
sort of role players in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to think that this small market team that made uh, one of its kind of biggest, most seminal uh, philosophies was the idea of trading your pre-free agent players for bucket loads of prospects has done the exact opposite now. And that's very fascinating. And so you might know that they didn't have a lot of rookies this year. And Mm -hmm. it's true they didn't have a lot of rookies. So I wondered, I wanted to put this lack of rookies in perspective. So what I did, Ben, Mm. is I went to the play index. I went to the batting season finder um, for individual players. I searched for um, all uh, for all non-pitchers who got at least one plate appearance for a team in a season that Baseball Reference has coded their rookie year or a rookie eligible year. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to pause real quick. Uh, this is where there would be a footnote normally. <laughs> um, maybe we can cut this and put it at the end of the show. Uh, and <laughs> people won't know what the footnote is until the very end. <laughs> 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 and it'll be italicized. Uh, but um, th- this is an inning. Rookie status is a tricky thing to do. Uh, I just actually had to go through about 60 players' rookie statuses for the um, Internet Baseball Awards balloting. And it's actually really hard to figure out who has rookie status in a lot of cases because you need to have. It's the 45 days of service time thing. Or is it 45? I think it's, geez, I, now I don't even remember how many days of service time it is. It's X number of days of service time, but September is not included and disabled list time is not included. And there's this weird way that if you get sent down but then called up within a certain amount of days, then those days in between are included. And it's very difficult. Rookie service time, oh, gosh. So... <laughs> So, so I think that um, so Play Index would uh, Baseball Reference would would acknowledge that this is a very good proxy for rookie status. But there, you will find examples of guys who had burned their rookie service time for some you know service time not played appearances reasons, uh, and they might still be listed. So inexact, pretty close, darn close. Okay. Mm. So I looked, and then I looked to see how many players uh, each team had had each year going back to 1998, which is when we started our current 30-team era. So mm-hmm. in those 30 years, there have been 510 teams, uh, 30 years. In those 17 years, there have been 510 teams, 30 teams times 17. Uh, and every one of them has had rookies that got a plate appearance. However, the A's are one of only 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 that had only one player. One rookie player get a plate appearance, and their rookie is Billy Burns, who I think batted five times. I didn't check, but just eyeballing these names, Miguel Cabrera, Ryan Howard, Grady Sizemore, Adam Everett, uh, and a couple that I don't know. But those I remember those guys' rookie years so pretty well. Not I guess I don't remember Adam Everett's. I don't know. Who, who would claim such a lie? <laughs> uh, but I, my, guess, my guess is that Billy Burns has the fewest plate appearances of any of these eight. I can check later, and if I turn out to be wrong, then I'll issue a correction on the next episode. Yes, we'll recall that <laughs> this episode. All right, so then next, pitchers did the same thing. 510 players and uh, 510 teams. And in this case... Only 509 teams have ever had a rookie starter or a rookie pitcher pitch even one out. And the one exception, the 2014 Mm -hmm. Oakland A's. Mm -hmm. So they are the only team in these 17 years that have never had a rookie pitcher. They are one of only eight that have only had one rookie hitter. And if you put those together, 
and just look for teams that employed a rookie in, uh, and had a rookie get in a game and get a plate appearance or pitch an out. The A's, according to this, the A's with one are, are the lowest. Uh, no other team in any other season has had fewer than five. I think I have one minor quibble. I hate your quibble. <laughs> I'm sorry to quibble, but I don't want to spread any false information. I believe that they had one other plate appearance Ooh. from a rookie. According to an article I read, uh, a Joe Lemire article. Tell me, what's his name? Brian Anderson. Brian with a Y? Yes, Brian Anderson. Pinch hit for one plate appearance this year, and I believe... Dude, Brian Anderson's not a rookie. Uh, Hang on, I'm looking. He doesn't. Have, he doesn't meet the plate appearances, but he's got he's got service time. I think he's going to have service time. He's he's appeared in three different seasons before this on the major league rosters. Usually, those are the guys who have capped their service time. I, I can't say for sure, but like in this one, he's got okay. So he's got twelve. So he's got like eighteen, nineteen days in the first year. That's assuming no DL. Let me, let me, let me, I'm there. 19. <laughs> okay, this one's a close one. 20. <laughs> okay, yeah, he's probably, he might be a rookie. It depends whether he was on the DL in 2010. Counting days of service time is <laughs> a great, great podcast activity. Yeah, so that was a stat I saw in, in Joe Lemire's Wall Street Journal article where he interviewed Bean at the end of September, but he did not say anything about other teams or where that put the A's historically. He just mentioned that they only had those rookies. So uh, hang on, hang on. Okay, I got more. I did mm-hmm. go a little further back because I wanted to see. And so I then I went back uh, to '93, which was the 2018 era, and uh, every team had a rookie, uh, and no team I think had fewer than four. Then I went back to 1977, which is the 2016 era. Every team had a rookie. I found one team with two. The 79 Brewers had two. Uh, but every other team had more than that, including in the strike-shortened seasons, um, and, which in the one strike-shortened season, there was no September. So you can imagine the accomplishment of, uh, of, of beating that season. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to 1970, which is the start of the 24-team era, and uh, every team had at least four or five rookies. So they are, uh, they are well historical. Yes, definitely. It's it's more extreme than I had realized. And there were some quotes from Billy Bean in that article where he said, I think you're undervaluing the value of the present, particularly in sports. Part of it is because of our situation. We've always tried to recognize that the present probably needs to be rated at a higher level here in Oakland than maybe the future. And they have really taken that to an extreme this year. And it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts because it did seem that other teams were kind of copying that at the trade deadline and and throughout the year. So who knows how long it'll be before the pendulum swings back in the other direction and the A's go after rookies again. But it really is pretty impressive that they managed to do that with with no rookies, more or less. Certainly no rookies who contributed anything to their season. Mm-hmm. So please use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to the Play Index, as we know that you will, to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Okay, this question comes from Steve, who says, In some of your past conversations, it has been clear that neither of you know a whole lot about European soccer. True. 
So I'm going to consider it possible that you don't realize that in the highest level of soccer in England and most other European countries, there are no playoffs. The regular season winner is the winner. There are also no subdivisions within the league. Everyone just plays everyone twice, and whoever is at the top at the end wins. They keep some knockout excitement by having a parallel tournament, including all teams from the lowest tiers on up, that leads to a National Cup champion in addition to the regular season champion. This can be the same team, possibly, and this achievement is known as the double. However, most fans of English soccer that I've talked to don't value the cup nearly as highly as they value the regular season crown. How would you feel about dual and equally valued regular season and postseason champions being recognized? And then he says that he's been thinking about this difference as well as cultural differences between the two regions. And he can't help but feel like the idea that you can be mediocre for most of the season but redeem yourself in the playoffs through some combination of luck and legitimate improvement is extremely American. It seems to me that the abolition of playoffs in American sports would lead to people feeling that teams were deprived of their chance to show what they were made of when it mattered most, and that it was somehow unfair when in reality playoffs are probably the less just way of determining the season's winner. I feel like I've heard that. I feel like I've heard the this is the this is the American spirit uh-huh. uh, theory before. Uh-huh. I don't know if I've heard that, but... Yes, I, I had heard about the, the way that it works in soccer, I think from other listener emails in the past, probably. And I would be fine with that, I think. I'd be okay with that, <laughs> with recognizing a regular season champion. It would be hard to do at this point, I think, <laughs> because the, the World Series is so ingrained. It's been around for well over a century now, and we are so used to the idea of the World Series being the goal that... I'm not sure many people are really clamoring for a regular season title. I don't know whether people would consider it any sort of legitimate improvement. But I would, I'd be happy to see it. Sure, I'd, I'd, I would expect that the team that won that and did not win in the playoffs would be sort of sheepish about having won that just because of the tradition and the way it's always worked or almost always worked. But I'd be okay with it. Is this thing that he's describing, Is this the, in the second paragraph, is he describing the Champions Cup, the Champions uh, League? I, I think the, so. The champ, sorry, the Champions League. Uh-huh. Is that what he's describing? I believe so. Okay. Because that is, the, when I've mentioned this to people, that they say, oh, that is the play. I mean, that's the postseason. Is that you, you play to get to the Champions League, and that is your postseason. And uh-huh. So I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't know if that's what he's describing. I don't know. As it turns out, uh, he was he was right <laughs> very intuitive about our European soccer knowledge. He was, but in principle, uh, the idea of crowning a regular season champion and so then my, yeah. having the having a month of something else entirely and and crowning another champion or oh, yeah. possibly the same champion, but oh no, but the I mean they, you know that all that would be like they could do that now. They could just give him a trophy, right? Nobody right. cares. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody. I mean, I guess if you market it, if you if you give teams banners, and you market it, and you get a little bit lucky, and people embrace it, then it could happen. I guess probably nobody's, maybe nobody's just ever tried. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the average fan, or even the uh, the the hardcore fan. I mean, we don't particularly care who has the best record, do we? Do you know? I guess you do know who has the best record because uh, we've said it. But <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, who had the best record last year, Ben? Mm, I don't know. And I, maybe the the problem then is, I mean, if you start talking about who had the best record, then are we going to start talking about who had the best 
third order record? Well, or well that's what I was going to get. <laughs> who had the best Pythagorean record? Who had the best run differential? Because yeah. there's obviously some luck that goes into having the best record in the regular season too. So yeah. that would be a potential complication. Yeah. All right. Who, well, who did? Who did then? Who did? <laughs> What's your guess? The Tigers. I'm going to say that it was the Cardinals. Uh, oh, it was. Oh, right. That was the, the year that the Red Sox and the Cardinals were the best teams in baseball and they played in the World Series. Oh, yeah, that year. <laughs> yeah, last year. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I didn't. Uh, yeah. All right. So we. Right. Because well, that was that was one of the stories of that postseason that that this was a case where the best teams actually did make the World Series and. One of them won it. Okay, well, and then there was a related question from Jason, who has basically the polar opposite idea of of Steve or philosophy of Steve. And Jason says there is a perennial sort of talk among baseball commentators that seems to take it for granted that it's easy to say that this or that team is the best team in baseball or the best team in the league. This happens even quite early in the season, like when the Giants were leading the majors at 42 and 21. And then there's complaining when the best teams get eliminated because they play like crap or get shut down in a five-game series when it really counts. But perhaps we should simply admit that there's more to a team's greatness than simply having the best record over 162 games. The Nationals had the best record in the NL, but in the NLDS, the Giants outhit them substantially, and the Giants pitchers shut down the Nats' well-balanced deep lineup. The third and fourth hitters for the Nats, Worth and LaRoche, had .071 averages in the series. Their fifth hitter, Desmond, batted 143. True, the Giants, in a much more powerful division, finished eight games behind the Nats. But over 162 games, does this easily translate into the Nats are the better team? What if the Nats can't deliver when it counts? What if their manager, a critical part of the team, can't make good, flexible decisions in pressure situations? Best team, really? I think a lot of the talk about how the current playoff setup doesn't crown a legitimate champion is silly. The goal is to get to have the sort of team that can A, get to the postseason, and B, succeed when it gets there. There's no reason to assume that the best team that will will be the best at succeeding in the postseason is necessarily the team that will be best at securing a winning record in the regular season. So teams should be built and balanced for both purposes. That's what it means to be the best team, to be able to do both. Do you buy that? You tell me if you buy it. I mean, it, it, it's related to the talk that we've been having for a while now about whether there is a way to win in the postseason or something that makes you better at being a postseason team than a regular season team. If there is, then I sort of buy it because, because when teams are planning at the beginning of the year, they are planning in part for the postseason. They're, they're planning to get there, of course, but if they think that there is something that will help them especially once they do get there then that's something that they would incorporate into their their roster building i would think and so if there were a way to build a really good playoff team that was distinct from building a team that was only good in the regular season then i would agree with jason i am not convinced that that's the case or that it's enough the case to matter that it would be enough to affect the team's planning or that the true talent of any team in the postseason would be so much higher than it was in the regular season, given that the strongest correlations with winning in the postseason seem to be whether you won in the regular season. So 
I buy it in theory, but in practice, I don't think so. It seems to me that the paragraph that, that sort of shows not necessarily how uh, weak this idea is generally, but how weak any evidence for it currently is or how useful it would be to accept the idea at this point is the one that says the Nationals had the best record in the NL, but in the NLDS, the Giants out-hit them substantially. Well, that seems... I mean, nobody's saying that you're... built. I mean, that seems like kind of the, the point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you going to do to build a playoff team? Build the team with the worst hitters? Like, the... Mm-hmm. The, and he goes on, the national, the third and fourth hitters for the Nats had 071 averages in the series. That's the point. Like, we're, you're not going to get, a, you're not, the strategy for the postseason is not going to be don't get Jason Worth or hitters of his quality. They'll only hit 071. The fifth hitter, Ian Desmond, batted 143. The Giants would have traded Brandon Crawford for Ian Desmond at any point in this season. And um, so uh, then he, his question is, what if the Nats can't deliver one? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's really hard to plan around. What if their manager can't make good, flexible decisions in pressure situations? If they thought that was the case, they wouldn't have hired him. They thought he could. That was the their goal in hiring a manager, was to hire a manager who could make good, flexible decisions in pressure situations. They'll try harder the next time. Or, or maybe Matt Williams had a bad week, or maybe Matt Williams just got unlucky. But it's not like anybody is saying that... Um, uh, you know, you shouldn't hire a manager. It's not like the Nationals built their team around hiring a manager who couldn't make good, flexible decisions in pressure situations. So there's really nothing out of all of this that is actionable intelligence, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I agree with that. Okay, uh, lots of other good questions. We'll probably get to some of them maybe next week, maybe in the off season. There's some some questions about free agents and salaries, and I will. Respect Rob Nyer's wishes. He wrote something recently about how the the talk about money and free agency can wait until November. We've got plenty of playoffs to talk about before then. So we got some good questions about that, but I will save it for now. It will work later. Keep sending us stuff at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We will be back with another show tomorrow.